1, starting in verse 26. Colossians 1, 26 through 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mercy mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now for a fresh filling of your spirit. God, I want to be dependent upon you and not my study, not anything else, Lord. And so I pray now that you would use this time to glorify your name, that you would uh, cause your word to go out and to bear fruit for your purposes, for your glory. And God, do this so we might have a greater understanding of you, which would cause us to worship you even in a deeper and deeper way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the years, uh, <clears throat> I really enjoy sharing my faith, but one of the things I learned is you have to talk to other people first and find out what they believe, figure out where they're coming from first before you start sharing so much of what you want to share. And, you know, I found that the key to determining the truth of any religion, or I'm going to say theology, because there's some stuff going on in evangelical churches today that is heresy. And uh, the key to determine whether the the religion is false or the theology is inaccurate, is this. Who do they say Jesus is? I remember I had a young man one time. He came up to me when I was at Crossfire, and he said, yeah, I'm into a, uh, I have a new religion. I said, what's that? He says, Kabbalah. And I said, well, what's Kabbalah? And he said, well, it's this mixture of Christianity and Judaism and a couple other religions. They're all kind of thrown together into one. And he started telling me about the documents and all the other subterfuge flying around. And I just said, hey, wait, just tell me, what do they believe about Jesus? Tell me what do they believe about Jesus. That's my starting point. And uh, really what's happening here is Paul is responding to what we call the Colossian heresy as he writes this book of Colossians uh, to these people. But this is not the only heresy that has come down the road. Uh, in the 1860s, there was what they called the kenosis theory. In the 1990s, it was open theism. God doesn't know all the details about everything. Uh, today, we have a very insidious thing happening in the church. We call it evangelical deconstructionism. Very dangerous, very dangerous. And the thing that they have all in common, all of these, all the way back to the to the Colossian heresy is that they diminish the nature of Christ, who Jesus is. And what happens is is that there is no gospel or salvation without the biblical Christ. And I say biblical because our beliefs about who Jesus is have to be based on the Bible, not man's ideas. And what we're going to find today is that Jesus alone is completely sufficient for salvation and for sanctification. It's all about Christ from beginning to end is what we're going to learn. Well, the book of Colossians was written by Paul somewhere around 61 to 63 A.D. during his first imprisonment in Rome. 
And uh, this is about the same time he wrote Ephesians. As a matter of fact, Colossae, which is a small town, is about 100 miles east of Ephesus in Asia Minor, in what we would call Turkey today. And this uh, particular epistle is one of the four prison epistles that Paul wrote while he was in prison. Um, What we find here in Colossians is Paul lays down the fact that there's a biblical that you have to have a biblical view of Christ as an antidote for heresy and that biblical view of Christ is the foundation from which we live our Christian life. You got to have them together. Take a look. Here is the outline of Colossians. And you notice it's in two big chunks. Chapters 1 and 2 basically are doctrinal and 3 and 4 are practical. So the practical is based off the doctrinal. The doctrinal is the foundation. Uh, chapters 1, 1 through, 4, 1 through 14 is introduction. Chapter 1, 15 through 2:23 is doctrinal. It's the supremacy of Jesus. That includes Christ is the head of, the, of creation, Christ the head of the church, and our freedom in Christ. Then in chapters 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 6, is the practical. Jesus empowers holy conduct. And that includes putting off the old self, putting on the new self, familiar responsibilities like uh, your relationships and your families. Uh, It also talks about slave master, etc. And then exhortations to prayer and proper conduct. And finally, in chapter 4, 7 through 18 is the conclusion. Well, what we find is this, is that there was this thing called the Colossian heresy, and Paul really starts dealing with this in chapter 2 to correct the error that was going on. Well, here's what that Colossian heresy, some of the parts of that, that Paul is addressing. Uh, This is chapter 2, numerous verses. Chapter 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. It's that idea that, you know, this doesn't make sense to me, so God's got to be like this instead of what the Bible says. It's human philosophy coming together, putting it down. And then we find here in verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to, uh, to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What he's dealing with there is the Judaizers who were coming and saying, in order to be a true Christian, in order to have true salvation, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the Jewish laws, the dietary laws, the festivals, all those things. They said that's what you really have to do to be a Christian. And Paul is saying, uh, no, you don't have to do that. As a matter of fact, he makes it clear in the next verse that it's not about all those things. Those things were pointing to something, someone. And so even though they were there at a time, they were pointing to Christ. That's why it says here in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come. They were pointing to Christ, but the substance belongs to Christ. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all that was uh, being shown through the festivals, etc. in the Old Testament. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetism and worship of angels. And verse 20, do not submit to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and ascetism 
and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He's saying you're doing these things to your body in order to become supposedly holy, and the whole issue is really your heart, so it's not really accomplishing anything. You know, I think of today where we, we say, well, we're in a certain season, Lent, and so we can't eat any, any meat, but we can eat fish. And that's supposed to help us somehow. Well, <clears throat> what he's talking about, some of the things that are happening here is in the ascetism, what happened is they, they were communicating that in order to have a higher spiritual state, you had to abase your body. You had to, to do things to your body in order for God to open up truths that were hidden. You know, you saw people that would, would uh, beat themselves. Uh, they would do certain things in order to, to show they were truly repentant. And if that happened, then God would reveal more of who he is or some spiritual truth. And that was the basis of this belief back then. But today we see this still reflected in some of the religions around the world, in Hinduism, in uh, Buddhism, in Judaism, in Islam, where it's this idea that I will do certain things and then God will reveal something about himself that I couldn't get any other way. So in one sense, I'm earning some of the truth that God is revealing to me through uh, the punishment of my body or my denying myself of things. Now, this is obviously different than Christian fasting in the sense that Christian fasting is we're not earning anything from God. We are fasting, but uh, it is a, a picture of what God has called us to at certain times in our lives for, I think, in particular direction. But again, this is different. They're thinking God is revealing certain secrets to them when they're doing these things to themselves. They have something interesting here in verse uh, 17. Worship of angels. What was that all about? Well, back then what they believed is that uh, Christians or people were unworthy to approach Jesus directly. So they had to go through angels. Does that sound familiar to anything today? Yeah, you know, we're not worthy, so we have to go through the saints or through the Virgin Mary. There's nothing new under the sun. That's what Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. That's what that was all about, that we have to have the right angel, you know. And I see, years ago I remember there was this whole group of people that were studying to try to understand the hierarchy of the angels and the demons so that they could go to spiritual warfare. And I think, wow, how about we just focus on Jesus? Because they're all defeated, the demons are, through Christ, right? Um, so what happened is, is that they, they believed that there was some mediator besides Christ, the angels. Well, the Bible makes this pretty clear in Timothy. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's Jesus alone. That's it. Another thing is, is that they were believing is that <clears throat> true salvation came through gaining secret knowledge by understanding human philosophies. That if you understood these philosophies, then what would happen is you would get to know God in a deeper way. Secrets would be hidden. You know, even today you have secrets, uh, you have societies that uh, I think of the Mason Society where you have to go through certain things in order to, when you find out these secret Uh, combinations of words and things like that, then what happens is that qualifies you for heaven or or that qualifies you for this and then knowledge is opened up 
And so what happens is, is it's, a, it's like it's secret and it's hidden. And you've got to dig to find this. And once you find the secret, the right combination of words, then God will open up who he is. That's the key to it all. And so they were believing in these things. As a matter of fact, a group of, of them known as the Gnostics had a belief about Christ that was like this, that Jesus was just a man and Christ was the divine spirit that came upon Jesus at his birth and left him at the cross. So then Christ did not die. Only Jesus died. And that's very similar to some of the things that I've heard. I actually heard from a pulpit, a guy, this was in this area, who said the very same thing. He said when Christ died, it wasn't Christ that died on the cross. Or when Jesus died, it wasn't Christ that died on the cross. He was no longer God. Wow. The kenosis theory was that Jesus left some of his, uh, he wasn't fully deity. He wasn't fully God when he came to earth. So you see these lies that come in that, that, that we're going to redo things because we're not comfortable with what the Bible says. That's really what, what evangelical deconstructionism is. is coming in and saying, I don't accept your definition of that word in the Bible, so I'm going to make my own definition, and then my truth becomes different than your truth. You see, it's man's philosophy Man's ideas. It makes me uncomfortable to think that God would be like this. So I'm going to change who God is by my human philosophy so that I can better accept God. Because some of the stuff that the Bible says about God makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, he's God. He gets to be God. And so what happens is these human philosophies come in. And that's why I say who Jesus is in all his fullness, is determined by Scripture, not human philosophies. And Paul is going to address this full on. And he comes and he has some of the most eloquent description of who Christ is in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Take a look at this. This is, unbelievable. This is awesome what Paul says. Addressing the Colossian heresy. He is the image, okay, that means manifestation, not reflection like in a mirror. He is the image. He is God in the flesh. He is God manifest in our presence. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through Him and for Him. Through Him, past, for Him, in the future and today. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. For in Him the whole fullness of deity 
dwells bodily. One of the things that, that the people back then, part of the, the Colossian heresy was, is that they were talking about full knowledge. And you would have to unlock these secret things. So you see the word fullness in all a lot in Colossians because he is addressing the Colossian heresy. And so we see here in this section of Scripture that Jesus was, He is, and He always will be fully God. That's who Jesus is. And the nature of Christ is non-negotiable. But if you have Jehovah Witness friends, they might use these verses. And they'll come in and they'll say, Whoa, now wait a minute. Jesus wasn't God. It says right in the Bible that he was first born. Hmm. He was first born of all creation. So that means he was the first thing created by God. Some people believe in emanations, that he was a lesser God or or a part of God or whatever it might be. You see, they say that Jesus was the first created, which means what? Because so much heresy is hidden. What does that mean? Then he wasn't really God. It also means this. He really wasn't eternal. Because there was a starting point. This subtle stuff that comes in here. This heresy that comes in and says, well, Jesus really wasn't all God. Or Jesus wasn't really eternal. He was the first created. So what about it? What does this mean? What this is, is this is Old Testament language. And it's tied into the firstborn's inheritance. Jesus had the firstborn's inheritance. All things are his, created for him. They are his. He is the firstborn. He is, in other words, as we would put it, he is the heir the first in line as owner and master. That's why the word preeminent is in here. He is preeminent over all things. He is the one through whom all is His. He is Lord over all. It's all His. It's all His. And the firstborn terminology implies that Jesus has supremacy over all things creation, and the church. Here is what it's laid out as. He is supreme. He is preeminent over all. He rules all. All of it is His. Jesus created all things. Jesus holds together all things. All things are for Christ. He rules the entire universe. I don't know if you had a blessing last Sunday. I saw something I've never seen before in my life. Any of you guys see the sun dog last Sunday morning? Now most of you are saying, what's a sun dog? Right? We'll go look it up. I got to church on Sunday and driving to church I saw it. The sun is up over here. And there was almost, it looked like a round rainbow, a ring, all around the sun. Did you see that? How many people saw that last week? It was 
awesome. And I never saw that before. I didn't know what it was. And then so I told him, I was talking to a couple guys, like, oh, yeah, it's a sun dog. Like, like, oh, yeah, I see him all the time. I mean, every week I see him. I'd never seen a sun dog. And it just caused me to worship God. You know, because it has something to do with moisture in the air and it's freezing and it reflecting the light and everything else. And I just stood in awe and I thought, you know what, that's who you are, God. You are preeminent over all things. You are the creator. It says that he holds all things together. You know, when you think of that, you have these orbiting electrons inside of atoms, right? Why don't they fly apart? Like charges repel. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus holds them all together. You say, how can you say that? Because that's what the Word of God says. He holds it all together. He's holding this whole thing together. And He always has. As child in Mary's arms, newborn, He was still holding it all together. This is our God. This is who Jesus is. He is preeminent over all things. And it says here that he is the firstborn from the dead. It says so in verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Firstborn from the dead proclaims that Jesus is Lord and head of the new body, the church. Christians, not a physical building, not a uh, free church organization, the body of Christ, all Christians. He is the head. He is head of creation. He is head of the church. He is the one who will inherit all things. Is above all things, is sovereign over all things. He was the first to rise to unending life. Because he wasn't, in man's terms, the firstborn to be raised from the dead, was he? Because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? But he was the first one to be raised from the dead and never die again. See? That's why he's head of the church. He's the head of those who would receive the gift of salvation, understanding that we are separated from God and there's nothing we can do about it. Our good works can never outweigh our bad works and pay the debt that we owe. So Christ came, put on the flesh. Here is another picture of the glory of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and he comes and he lives and he fulfills the law for all who would receive the gift of salvation. That he lived perfectly without sin and thought, word, or deed, then went to the cross and was brutally punished for the sins of all of his people. And three days later, he was the first to be raised from the dead. First to never die again. A picture of the church coming together and God providing eternal life with him in heaven through Christ's sacrifice, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the picture that we have. 
And so Paul is talking to these people, and he's proclaiming that Jesus is head of the church, and he knows that they're all kind of got their ear to the ground, right? And he's, they're looking for the secret stuff, you know. Hey, we've got the good stuff over here, you know. What secret does this guy have? And hey, maybe I'll understand God more. And Paul starts, he knows that, so he kind of stokes the fire. He says, hey, i got a mystery for you. I've got a mystery for you. It's interesting how this word is used in this book because of the, again, the context. Who's it written to? What's going on? So Paul reveals a mystery to them in response to the Gnostic search for secret hidden truths that would reveal more about God. And it's a mystery not because you can't understand it, but because it's been hidden. Hidden in a way for years. It was right there, but nobody could put it together until Christ came. He's talking about all these things that were happening in the Old Testament, the law, the, the, all the festivals and, and the sacrifices and all that. Because there's this mystery, and it was hidden for ages, but now it's revealed to you. It's shown to you. He says, take a look. Here's the mystery that you're looking for. And again, Colossians 1, 26 through 27 the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is it? What is it? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Christ in you hope of glory. He says, here's what you look. You want to know how God is going to reveal himself? How God is going to show? It's Christ. God in the flesh. It goes on in Colossians 2, 22 through 4, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. See that? Full assurance of understanding. That's what the, the Gnostics were struggling with. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's about Jesus. He is the one. God revealed. You want to know about God? It's Christ. And he goes on, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's not about man's knowledge and thinking, well, it's got to be this because God certainly couldn't be like that, etc., etc. And he's going, no, it's about Jesus and what the Word of God says about him. That's what's true, whether we can get our heads around it or not. He says, it's about Jesus. That is the mystery. Christ living in you. Particularly, he's targeting the Gentiles here. Also includes the Jews. The hope of glory. Just think about that. Just think about that. This mystery. Paul has just laid out who Jesus is. He created all things. All things are for him. And through him, all things are held together. And that God dwells within you. Think about that. That 
is a mystery. That is amazing. Think about that. This is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And because somehow miraculously we are united with Christ, there are profound implications to that. Unbelievable implications to the fact that we're united with Christ, that He dwells within us. Take a look at just a few verses. Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Because He dwells within you. So walk in Him. Three, two through three. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Wow, is that packed. Whole sermon on that. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17-18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That means, as as the Word of God says, that Christians have died with Christ. Therefore, we we are able to die to sin. We have died with Christ. We, We can die to the power of sin over us. That old self, put it off. You know, Paul was talking about that struggle in Romans chapter 7. The thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I keep doing what was he talking about? He's taking, talking about taking off the old self and putting on the new self is what he was talking about. He's talking about sanctification. And what we have here is that a Christian, when they receive the gift of salvation, we have died with Christ. The power of sin over us is broken. And then it says not only that, but we have been raised with Christ. That means we can live in holiness. We can be like Christ. He is making us like Him. We can put on the old self. The power of sin is broken. The penalty was paid at the cross, but the power has also been broken. So we can walk in holiness. We can be like Jesus, and He desires to do that, to make us like Him. And when we hesitate about that, we have to go back to what Paul is saying. He's saying, what's the theological truth that undergirds this? Jesus, the Creator, the one who's holding all things together, the one whom all things are for, dwells within you. Now tell me you can't live like this. Because He will enable you to do that. It's about Jesus. It keeps coming back to Jesus and His glory and His greatness. Our supreme, omnipotent God indwells Christians. And it is Jesus' desire to impact all areas of our lives. 
our thoughts, our words, our actions, our relationships. He desires that. Jesus will empower you to take off the old and put on the new. Because that's what we're commanded to do. And we can't do that in our own strength. But he says, Christ in you. That's the mystery. That's the glory. That's the power. It's Christ in you to put off the old and to put on the new. Sanctification. As I like to say, holiness is grace with blisters. Holiness is becoming more like Jesus is the way I like to put it. And holiness is grace with blisters. It's a work of God. He has to enable it. But we just don't sit back. You know, we got to resist the devil, flee temptation, things like that. That's the blisters part. But the grace part is all here. God enables it. God is the one who stirs our hearts up when we get sick of sin. We say, God, I, 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 I don't want this anymore. And he does that work in us. He is the one who causes us to hold fast to Him. He holds us. He holds us. He's the one who causes us to know His Word. Brothers and sisters, when you're reading the Word of God or you're under teaching and all of a sudden a truth opens up that you never knew before, do you realize you just had an encounter with the living God? You know, when that happens, you know what would probably be the correct response? To just stop and worship God. Because that's something he just did. He just opened up his word, the knowledge of the word, as, he, as we see truths that we didn't see before, is a gift from God. And people say, I wish God would just talk to me. I wish I knew you. Every time you have a, an understanding of the word of God, it's God doing something in your life. He is invading the very place where you're at. And opening up the scripture, it's not about a secret handshake. It's about the living God within you. And opening up his word and the knowledge of God's word goes forth. It's him who enables us to set our minds on the things that are above. He, he, He calls us to do that. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. We can't do that. Not in our own strength. So he calls us to do that. He indwells us and he empowers us to set our minds on things that are above. Isn't it interesting how, as we're reading through this in Colossians, doesn't this sound very familiar to last week? About abundant joy? And Paul says, how do you get abundant joy? Think upon these things, right? He goes through, and it's, it's, it's this parallel almost as you go through this last section of Colossians, as you see the same thing Paul's saying, repeating it from the Philippians' perspective with regards to abundant joy, and now here. He's saying, hey, put your mind on the things above, not on the things that are below, that are earthly. And he empowers those things. Take a look. Here's God's word. <coughs> Excuse me. Colossians 2 9. Now, he was talking about them <coughs> on the negative side, 
because they were listening to people. So I crossed out the word not. I wanted to leave it in there, and here's why, and just cross it out because he was giving the, the negative side to it, and I wanted to leave it in there because somebody might otherwise go and say, oh, Dan was cheating. He didn't put the word not in there. Well, read it, go back and read it in context. So what I'm saying is that this is what Jesus enables us to do, what we're called to do, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Why have you grown in your faith? Because God has grown you up. That's what it says here. The things that were binding you up as a new believer, the struggles that you had with sin, and now you feel more of a freedom in those areas. How? Because of God. As you grow, it's a gift from God. As you understand Scripture and you love the Word more and you love Jesus more, it's a gift from the living God. You are encountering the living God. And He is doing this work in you. It's amazing. All we can do is worship Jesus. Colossians three sixteen through 17 Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Again, sounds like Philippians, doesn't it? In Colossians 1, 10 through 11 and 28, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then Colossians 3, 12a. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And it goes on. But I stop there. Because I think we need to understand that that's who you are. You see, this is a description of you if you know Jesus. That's what it says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's you. Holy because of Christ's righteousness imputed to you. You're beloved, brothers and sisters. You're beloved. You're chosen by God. He picked you. Nobody else would pick me, but he did. You see, Colossians teaches us that Jesus alone is completely sufficient for salvation and sanctification. Be on the guard for any, any deviation that diminishes the centrality of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But sometimes in Reformed churches, we need to be reminded of this. The gospel is not first theology or a way of thinking. The gospel is about a relationship. Jesus. Don't forget that. We can get caught up in all the other stuff. It's important. But it's about a relationship with Jesus. We can forget that. 
But we are chosen, we are holy, we are beloved of God. And we can't forget that. Because the gospel is not primarily theology. It's about relationship with the Savior, with our Jesus. He died for us so that He might live in us and fellowship with us. There's the gospel. So delight in the fact. Rejoice in the fact that you are passionately loved by the God described in this book. The Creator. The one who is holding all things together. Whom all things are for. He's preeminent over all creation and the church. And you are His beloved. And He dwells within you. He is your indwelling Creator and Savior and Friend. And that, brothers and sisters, is the Gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of You today. Lord, Your Word is so true. This is the mystery. Christ in You, the hope of glory. God, we stand in awe of You. And we see in Your Word who You are. And we are overwhelmed. We are undone. And yet you call us into your presence and you delight over us because of Christ. And God, you will do that for all eternity, not because of our performance, but because of who Christ is for us. And so we worship you this morning, Lord. We stand in awe of you. And we praise you and thank you for all that you have done, are doing, and will do to glorify your name in and through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.